owner, so I've got uh, one leg up to the hip in uh, the marketplace and the other leg up to the hip in, in uh, the church. And it, it's, it's a really great place to be. I, I absolutely love where, where I am because uh, in one way, uh, guys in the marketplace need to understand that the gospel needs to be the center of everything, the way we think about everything. And so you'd be surprised how you can have your your understanding of uh, God's calling real clear when it comes to church stuff or maybe family. Um, but you walk into the into your job, man, and you start thinking like Jim Collins or thinking like, you know, you, we, we flip-flop where, we're, where we don't think the same way anymore. So uh, it's a lot of fun to help men engage their work. Our work is, you're going to spend more time at work, guys, than all the other areas of your life added up, except for sleep, if you sleep a lot. But... Uh, and so what happens in your work will have a profound effect in everything else that you do. And that's been our experience over the last 20 years. We're just in a real ordinary business. We, we work for car dealerships. The nice thing is we work for car dealerships, and so you can have a very ordinary witness, and you shine like crazy among car guys, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's from day one, it's been, I, I, I had pastored for 10 years before going back into uh, business 20, 21 years ago. And from day one, the vision was to, to see how all the Sunday stuff could play out in, in a work environment in the way that we uh, built together as a team of men, how we tried to serve our customers uh, in a way that would cause them to scratch their head. And in the way that we did, whatever it was that we were doing in a way to bring glory to God, to, to learn how to bring Jesus into the center of that thing. So that part of my life is a lot of fun. And then the other part is doing the pastor thing. And um, I love that too. Primarily, I feel like my responsibility is to help other pastors understand that the people that they lead, not, 99% of the men that pastors lead have a different calling than they do. And so it's really important for pastors to learn how to equip you for your world, not just to recruit you to do their stuff. And I understand the temptation because I've got stuff I've got to recruit people to do too. And if you're not careful, church stuff can just take up all your time. And you never get to, wait a minute, how's the gospel play out where I am? And how do I build those relationships? And how do I you know, share the gospel and all that? So. Uh, I've got a very small uh, mission tonight. We're going to go through the whole Bible tonight, okay? So it may be it may be lame, but uh, well, I'm going to go down swinging. <laughs> so, uh, so our our theme here is uh, the gospel at work, and and what I want to talk about tonight, I want to kind of tee things up with uh, with the big picture, and uh, like. You know, we're good old Americans, and so the, the one philosophy in all of history that Americans are responsible for, do you know what it is? It's only one. I think it originates with Benjamin Franklin, but it's pragmatism. And so we're the practical guys, right? And so wherever you are, the way, the way people are going to think is they're going to begin with, okay, well, you know, what needs to be done, and how are we going to do that thing, and that's pull up your bootstraps, good old American pragmatism. But in order to, to get the, the what and the how right, you've always got to begin with the why. And if you don't get your, your why right, it, it's like uh, you know putting on your shirt and, and your wife's not around to 
help you get the buttons right and you walk around like a dork all day long and nobody tells you and your buddies are laughing behind your back and stuff. But we, we have to begin with the why. And, and the why is always theological. Every one of us are, you may, you may not know it, but you're a theologian. And, and that mean, all that basically means is you have an opinion about God and what God thinks, right? You have an opinion about what's important. Well, if we don't get that stuff right, we're going to do a lot of stupid things. We're going to make a lot, of, a lot of mistakes. And I'm at a season in life, I don't have much time for do-overs anymore. I got, I got, to, I got to get this stuff right. I want to finish strong. And I wish I could be in you know, some of you young, young guys' seats where I, I could be sure I was getting the buttons lined up right. And I was getting my why right. Not only in, in my salvation, but, but what my salvation means. What does it mean? What is it for? And I think uh, there's something for us all to learn in that area. So turn with me. Uh, let's take a look at Ephesians, first chapter of Ephesians. Pull out your Bible. or They used to say, I love the sound of flipping pages. Now, I don't know, maybe I love the sound of, uh, I love the light of flashing devices. But pull up your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to take a look at Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. It's going to be the theme tonight. It's going to be the theme again tomorrow morning. And there's a lot in here, and it is just really great stuff. If you have not uh, read the book of Ephesians, I could probably say this about numerous books, but Ephesians would certainly be my favorite. I think it's my favorite book. Today it's my favorite book. Most On off days, Ephesians is my favorite book. And then in between, there's something else I'm excited about. But it it almost always comes back to Ephesians. And the reason why is the whole first half of the book of Ephesians is about the big story and the why behind everything, who the Lord is, what he's doing. And it isn't until you even hit, maybe it's the beginning of chapter 3 or maybe it's even later, that you even have one thing that you're told to do. The whole first part of it is the glory of God and his purpose in Christ. But then the second half of the book unpacks all that stuff. And by the end, you get into all the practical things of what does it mean to be a dad? What does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be a part of the church? How do leaders work? How do followers work? How do, how do I relate with my boss? And how the boss needs to be pretty careful of the way he treats his people because he's got a boss too. And, and the spiritual warfare that's involved in doing all that stuff. Ephesians is a great book. So we're just going to hit a nugget of it, but it's, it's a, the verse we're going to hit is a microcosm of all that stuff that we're, we're going we're to try and unpack. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at 7 through 10. You ready? You with me? All right. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray together and commit this time to the Lord, okay? Lord, I just thank you for these fine guys. Lord, thank you. What a privilege it is to be in a room full of men. And uh, we we just acknowledge, Lord, that uh, without you, this this evening will be a waste. 
but with your spirit at work among us, this can be an amazing time. And so I just just pray the prayer that Paul prays later on in Ephesians. I pray, Father, that, that you would give every man in this room, you'd give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that the eyes of our understanding would be opened to know the hope of your calling, that we'd know our inheritance in the saints, and that we'd experience the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, to meet us where we need you most, Lord. I just pray, would you lead us tonight? Would you get the glory that you deserve tonight? And would you lay foundations in these fine guys' lives, Lord, to think differently as they engage uh, Monday and engage Wednesday afternoon and, and every part of their lives? We ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it, this is an understatement. Uh, we live in really challenging times, don't we? Really weird times. For, for the dudes in the room who go back a ways, you realize what really bizarre times we live in with the, the, the speed of change. I'm a, you know, I, I come out of the 50s. I'm a leave it to beaver, Andy Griffith uh, generation guy. Uh, when I grew up, Judeo-Christian values were the norm in the United States. Everywhere you look, people went to church. Even if they weren't believers, there was a form of, of morality and Christian virtues that the entire culture ascribed to. And here we are in less than a generation where, uh, I mean, things are completely turned upside down where... You know, anything goes. And to be to be a Christian uh, is viewed skeptically uh, at best. And at worst, uh, you can be thought of as dangerous, uh, dangerous to society, uh, somebody that needs to be on a list someplace, right? And uh, it leads to a question. I want to kick things off with a question I want to ask you guys. And here it is. With the change that's happened in the West, we'll call it in the West, because it's the same change that's happened in Europe a few years, a decade ahead of us, what we're experiencing now. But here's the question. Think about this with me. Is there something fundamentally wrong with the core message that the modern-day church is proclaiming that has brought us to this place? Is there something wrong? You know, it's interesting that, that you might think, why do you even talk about what the church has to do with it? Well, it's interesting. If you look at Second Chronicles 7.14, you guys may know that verse. It's a the verse about prayer. But what it says is the way the culture changes is not by changing laws, though I vote and I would be involved politically because it's part of my responsibility as a citizen. But things don't change there, though you do it, that may, that may be a means of how it works. Things change when, and here's what the verse says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and they turn from their wicked ways, the church, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sins, and I'll heal their land. So the, the key to what's going on in the world around us, it begins with us. And if there's problems in society, it's because there's probably something wrong with the witness that we've been, something wrong with the the diet that we're feeding on. 
So here's the question one last time, and then we'll keep it rolling. Is there something fundamentally wrong with the core message that the modern-day church has been proclaiming that's led us to this place? And I think I'd say, yeah. I don't think there's any question about it. And so if there's a problem, we can look at the fruit, but we, in order to understand where the fruit comes from, right, we need to go dig, we need to get to the root, right? And so let's, let's do that together because the root is always theological. So here's a theological question for you. If I were to ask you this question, how would you answer? What is God's purpose in the world? What is God's purpose in the world? And I know what the, the immediate thought is. I know what immediately comes to my mind. It's God's purpose is that people would be rescued from their sins through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's obviously a really good answer. It's an awesome answer. It's, uh, it's the message that transformed my life 35, 40 years ago, you know. Uh, but it's not the whole answer. It's not a complete answer. It's, it's only partially true. God's purpose is much greater. And the implications of the gap between our thinking of what God's purpose is and what God's actual purpose is has profound ramifications both for us and for everything that we touch our, our families, our workplace, our communities, our city, etc. Okay? So let's look again at Ephesians 1, and I'm going to just hit the last two verses here, verses 9 and 10. And here's what it says. It says, God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven, and things on earth. So God, you, know, you, you might not have thought that, that God has a mission statement. God has, we're looking at God's mission statement. And his, his mission is not just to rescue us from our sins, as important as that is, obviously, okay? But it's to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Say with me, all things all things, things in heaven and things on earth, right? All things. And there's a thing that I call the modern uh, American evangelical gospel. You guys know what the modern American evangelical gospel is? Here's what it is. It's God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, right? And what do I do with that message? Well, I, if you'll just pray this prayer with me, you're going to go to heaven when you die. Yeah, I, I want to go to heaven when I die. So, I mean, I, I came to the Lord through a message that probably wasn't a whole lot deeper than that. And in God's amazing grace, he apprehended me. But that gospel, the, the modern American evangelical gospel, is a minimalistic story that requires a minimalistic cost, right? It's, it's a story that, that begins with man, 
It begins with man's worth, man's need, and God's kindness to meet us at our point of need and, and give us the stuff that we, we need, okay? It, it's a story of a personal, individualistic faith versus a public faith. I, how many times have we heard this? I, I invited Jesus into my heart. Uh, Jesus has become my, my personal Savior, Nice to have a personal Savior. It all sounds like, you know, like a little errand boy or something like that. But Jesus becomes my personal Savior. It's, it's the story. The, the modern American evangelical gospel is a story about the promise of heaven, not God's purpose on earth at all, right? And it's about pie in the sky, not the ham where you am, right? Which, which is a problem, and I always enjoy saying that, even though it's so corny. So if, if, the, if the modern American evangelical gospel is true, I've got a solution for this thing. If all it's about is get somebody to pray a prayer with you, and he's going to heaven, what we need to do is we need to get rid of all of that stuff in between when I pray that prayer and when I finally go to heaven. I mean, for me, it's going to be... I hope I'm going to keep going here for a while, maybe 50 years, maybe something. What we need to do is we need to change our baptismal process where you lead somebody to the Lord and then they come to church to do the baptism and you put them down and you just keep them there. You just keep them there. and Because if there's anything that's going to happen between there and heaven, let's just send that guy on. Send him on. Why not, right? Is there... is It's just about going to heaven. Is there some reason for him to... What happens after you get out of the water? Do we just wait around and eat pie at the, you know, in the... The, the, the church fellowship hall and, and visit and stuff like that? What, what, what happens between... So it goes, pray the prayer, eat pie, go to heaven? How, how does the thing work? And it, it is God's purpose to accomplish something more than that? Is God interested in something more than that? Uh, I, I think so. Uh, the the modern, evangel, uh, modern American evangelistic gospel proclaims, if I could say this word, I actually love this word, it proclaims a puny gospel. Don't you like the word puny? It just says it. It's exactly what it is, a puny, it's a puny, powerless gospel. And a puny, powerless gospel produces puny, powerless disciples. And the gospel that was proclaimed by Jesus and his disciples was very different. It wasn't. It wasn't the modern American evangelical gospel. It was the message, it was the proclamation of the kingdom of God. That's what it was. And in, in Mark 1, it says, this is Jesus, and the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And it's consistent with with Jesus' disciples. Here's Philip in Acts 8. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Here's Paul, Acts 19. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
The Bible does not teach us a, a gospel of personal salvation, but a gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. It's the story of the King of kings and Lord of lords who rules and reigns over everything. And it's how that king, the king of all eternity, entered time and space. It's a wonder how he revealed his majesty and his reign. And it's a call for everyone everywhere to repent, to change your way of living, to change your priorities, and to surrender your life to the reigning king. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He didn't teach them to pray. Listen to how we pray so many times, guys. Lord, please, I need a better job. Or Lord, I, I, I need a better car. Or Lord, I'm not, you know, I've been coughing. I know we have serious prayers. I, I understand. I'm, I'm mocking. I know there's real serious things. I got real serious stuff in my life too, but it's still good to have fun. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It wasn't all about me and my puny stuff. It was a, a storyline that drew me and consumed me with the glory and the greatness of God and his eternal purpose right here and right now. And there's a book, a very good book. It's called What Are People For? It's written by a guy named uh, Wendell Berry. Here's Wendell's quote. The quality and significance of our lives and our work is shaped by the story that we find ourselves in. Let me say it again. The quality and significance of our lives and our work is shaped by the story that we find ourselves in. And the Bible reveals a much grander storyline than the modern American evangelical gospel. It's the amazing, overarching narrative of God's great purpose on earth. And it doesn't just impact personal souls, but it transforms every aspect of the cosmos. And it's to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. And there's a, a famous quote. There's a guy named Abraham Kuyper. You probably never heard of him. He was a, a Dutch theologian. He actually, at, for a season, was prime minister of the Netherlands. He was a believer, a profound thinker. Here's his quote. This is one of the great. If you ever could have a quote like this, maybe the Lord will give me a quote like this one day. Probably not. Kuyper already got it. But here's what it is. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. Is that awesome? There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, that's mine. Is that beautiful? Wow, that's that is. Thank you, Abraham. That is beautiful. So, let's let's do a little doodling here. Bear with me. I, I'm not. I'm I'm a slob. But hopefully, hopefully, it will 
will help us here a little bit just to see what we want to reinforce in our minds. So here's the modern American gospel, right? It's my need. There I am. I'm needy. And God's answer, right? Isn't that how it goes? Something like that? Uh, These would, if we were to use more theological terms, these would fall in the category of fall and redemption. And uh, obviously that is a uh, pretty minimalistic uh, focus. As wonderful as this is, and I mean, this is what got me, I already told you, uh, it it is only a very, I wouldn't say a small part. How can you say the gospel is a small part of God's storyline? See, this is where, understand what I'm saying and don't let me, don't listen to something that I say that may actually be heresy and believe it, okay? Because that's not what I'm trying to say. But what we desperately need biblical bookends for this storyline in order to understand God's great story. And so what we're going to focus on tonight, we're going to call it that. We're going to call it God's great story. Okay. And if there was, if there was a homework assignment that I could give you guys that will rock your world and serve you in an absolutely profound way. Here's what it is. For those of you that would like to do this, listen, because it's very very simple. It'll take you a little bit of time. I would challenge you to read Genesis 1 and 2 every day for two weeks. Read Genesis 1 and 2 every day for two weeks. And then also, in the same two weeks, read Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. Or if you don't have time for that many chapters, read Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters. Because the bookends of Scripture are critical in our understanding what the gospel is for. If you don't know your bookends, if you don't understand the context in which the gospel story lies, you're going to end up eating pie and waiting to go to heaven. And that, that is a tragedy. But God's great story, it's actually five acts, okay? If it were a, a theater, five acts. But here's how it goes. And there, there are different ways to do this, but I do it my way because I like it. And, I, and, it and, it's, and it's meaningful to me, okay? Most would begin with creation. I think that's, I think that's you're moving way too fast. We need to begin with God. Then we go to creation. Can somebody, who's, who's the squeak and rattle guy around here? Then we, have re, then we have the fall, then we have redemption, and then we have restoration. I used to have a friend who worked for Ford. He was the squeak and rattle guy. You know, so you'd bring your, bring your car and he'd figure out a way to get some tape in there or some cotton or something like that. Okay, So here we have under God, we've got... God's nature and glory. Sorry, I'm a slob. Under creation, we have God's priorities and purpose. Okay, then we get to the fall, and we're going to get rid of the whiny guy, and we're going to call this uh, man's rebellion. 
and then we'll get rid of that one and also call this uh, New Life in Christ. And then here we get to All Things New. That's, a, that's an exciting thing right there. Okay? Act 1. God. If we don't have Act 1 down solid, none of the rest of anything is going to make any sense because the whole storyline is supposed to display his nature. And if you don't really understand his nature, you're not going to get how stuff fits together. You're not going to understand why your marriage matters. You're not going to understand why your work matters. You're not going to have a lens to look through that brings definition to your stuff and gives really eternal significance to it. It really does, okay? So in the beginning, God. And we discover that the story, the, the reason that in the beginning God is so important is because we need to remember that in the beginning it doesn't begin with me, right? This is not the story about me. This is the story about the glorious God who created everything and has been from, from everlasting to everlasting, reigning, ruling, beautiful, glorious, the almighty God It's a story about him. It's about his awesome beauty, his holy attributes, his eternal purpose. And it's critical to understand who this God is. We need to know who he is. And we need to understand Trinity is really important. We need to understand the wonder of the triune God. And for most Christians, you think, oh boy, Trinity I'm going to pass that off to one of the pastors. He'll talk about all that. And I know that there's, there is all kinds of mystery in the Trinity. I'm not going to explain it all to you. But there's some basics that if you don't understand them, you don't have the first button buttoned. And you're a dork. And you're not going to be able to live your life well because the stuff that matters most won't make sense to you if you don't get the first button right. And the first button is the beauty of the triune God. So if you think, how does this tie with work? It does, totally. We want to understand his wonder. There's, the scripture says that there's only one God, okay, so we're not getting into heresy here, only one God, yet in the Godhead there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of those three persons is fully God, and yet there's only one God. So that's kind of the theological, that's the, the uh, uh, seminary junior description of the Trinity. And so there's much mystery, there's much that we don't understand, but here's what we do understand and we must understand, is that before space, time, before atoms, before you were a twinkle in your mommy's eye, the triune God existed, okay? And that from eternity, from eternity, God the Father was delighting and celebrating and pouring forth his joy and honor toward his Son. From eternity. And, and from eternity, God the Son was honoring and delighting and returning the Father's love and esteeming him and following his direction and delighting in his leadership and his headship. 
And from eternity, God the Holy Spirit was rejoicing over this relationship between the Father and the Son and, and radiating and revealing the beauty of God's nature and the glory of his great love. That at the core, God is a God of love. He's a God of relationship. And so we see that within the nature of, there's joy in the Godhead. God is happy. God is not a bummer. He's not some old grumpy guy with a beard up there, you know, noticing that you're screwing up. Now, God is happy. God's nature is happy. He he is the happy, self-existent triune God. And what we learn about that is at the core of God's nature is relationship. At the core of his nature is community, love honor, overflowing joy and delight is at the essence of the Godhead. Always outward focused. Always others focused. Always dodging the honor to esteem someone, the other parts of the Godhead as more important, as more beautiful. You're glorious. No, you. No, you. I mean, I can't. The the theologians talk about the dance of the Trinity, that there is this relationship of honor and blessing and joy. And it's just, it's a wonder. It's a wonder. it's, it's, It's like an artesian well that is overflowing with love and grace and glory. God himself is. And A.W., you guys probably heard this quote, but here's a quote from A.W. Tozer. This is from his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, he says, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the single most important thing about you. And so here's a question for you. What do you think of when you think of the glory of God? What do you think of? The glory of God. Does it just throw you into tilt? Impossible to even imagine that. The glory of God, what does that mean? I, I know what would typically come to my mind. I think about giving God glory, right? I think about we're in worship and we're, we're glorifying the Lord. I want to honor him with my life. I want to give him glory, right? I mean, that's good. It's good that we give him glory. It's good that we worship. That's not what glory is. It's good that we worship. It's to behold his beauty, to behold his glory. I mean, that's for our benefit. He, he's, he's happy already. He does, he's not needing anything, right? Glory. God is not self-centered. God uh, isn't needy. He, his glory isn't focused toward himself. And he doesn't require our worship even though we require to give it, right? I'll give you a definition. God's glory is his overflowing happiness displayed in his self-giving love. God's glory is his overflowing happiness displayed in his self-giving love. The fountain of God's outward, others-focused loving kindness and grace. And knowing 
who God is brings understanding to all of the other parts of the storyline and our part in fitting into it. And so we get to Act 2 of creation. And we see from the very beginning that God's glory is overflowing in the creation of the heavens and the earth. And as we engage Genesis 1 and 2, which you guys are going to do for the next couple of weeks, we also discover that God is a worker, that there's, there's dirt under his fingernails, and that he, 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 his glory radiates in the beauty and wisdom of every aspect of the world that he's designed and created. And God fills this world of wonder with every kind of mineral and plant and animal, every, every kind of wonder that you can imagine. And at the climax of this overflow of God's glory, God forms out of the, the dust of the ground and breathes into that mud and forms a man in his image to bear his likeness as the crowning jewel of his creation. And we learn that, that man was created, we were created to reflect God's nature to extend God's glory. Man was given delegated authority over all the earth, everything on it. He was called to work and keep God's good world. He was called to bear fruit and multiply, to fill the earth, to take dominion. Called to do everything that he was to do for the love of God and for the good of others, right? And all of that as an extension of the nature and the glory of the triune God. And we've got to know who this God is and what his purpose is before we can understand who we're called to be and what we're called to do and why it matters. If we're to be to bear his image, we're to if we're to reflect his glory, if we're to work and keep our little slice of God's world, uh from that place of understanding what our calling is, who this Lord is, we're called to bear fruit. We're called to multiply. We're called to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're called to unite all things in Christ. Everything we do, united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And Genesis 1 and 2 helps us to understand and engage what our salvation is for. Okay? And... There's no way to do this in the time that I have, so I'm, gonna, I'm doing like the, the flyby. But so Act 3, we get to the fall. Genesis 3 tells us what went wrong in God's perfect world, how Adam's sin has affected everything. Relationships, work, how Adam's sins, it's affected you and me, right? And then we get to Act, act 4, redemption. And so, you know, every one of these things we could spend, you know, weeks just in each, each of these areas. Act 4, redemption, the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the birth of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the, the extension of the gospel of the kingdom into all the world. Just a couple of minor issues, you know, we'll just kind of keep flying by those. I'm sorry, I mean, I just can't, can't do it in, in the time. So we know 
in concept what is there, and I need to highlight the bookend, so please forgive me for flying by such amazing stuff. But uh, it's important to realize before getting to, to Act 5, we're still in Acts, right? Do you guys know that? We're still living in Acts 29. The book of Acts never closes, and the commissioning that was given to the church, the, the calling, the outpouring of the Spirit, the purpose that God entrusted to the church to take the gospel of the kingdom to all of the world, it still stands. And we, we have the privilege of playing our part in the last scenes of, of Act, Act 4. So, uh, Act 5, Restoration. The final act in God's great story is restoration. Another, another theological word that's used is the consummation of all things. And this is Revelation 19 through 22. And just like Acts, excuse me, just like Genesis 1 and 2, the other bookend of Revelation 19 through 22 is also critical in helping us to, to live wisely in light of God's overarching purpose in Christ. And when we read Revelation, you know, when you think about Revelation, you turn on the TV and you listen to all these people talking about what everything means. And if we're not careful, we get distracted with all the symbolism and who's the Antichrist and when's it going down and do I buy freeze-dried food right now and run to the hills or what are we supposed to do? Uh, Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But... uh, The main thing to know about Revelation, to be able to really benefit from it, is this. Revelation was written to specific churches in in a specific time in history as they faced horrible persecution. It was written by the ascendant. It it was uh, communicated to John on the island of Patmos when the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him what to do bring to these challenged believers who are going through very, very difficult times. And uh, it was meant to be an encouragement in a time of testing, and that's how it will serve us best as well, not trying to figure out what the mark of the beast is or whatever. You and I, guys, have been born in a very strange time in history. And uh, the thing that is so weird about it is it doesn't cost us anything to be a disciple of Jesus. And that is absolutely unheard of in the history of the church. This is, we, we, we've been born into a strange little window in time where there's this bizarre modern American evangelical gospel that we pray a little prayer and eat pie and go to heaven, and it doesn't cost us. And uh, I just want you to know that's not authentic Christianity. It's not what it really is. And, and Revelation will help you understand what it really is. It certainly wasn't the case for the churches that received uh, the, the vision of Revelation. And here's a quote from Alistair Begg. I love Al- Alistair Begg. I don't know if you guys know him, but he's, he's a beauty. Here's his quote. If you live in such a manner as to stand the test of the last judgment, you can depend on it the world will not speak well of you. (laughs) Say it again, it's too good. Some of these quotes, you just can't do once and keep flying. That's just so disrespectful. One more time. If you live in such a manner as to stand the test of the last judgment, you can depend on it. 
the world will not speak well of you, Alistair Big. And, uh, you know, it causes us to think of the heroes of Hebrews 11 and, uh, you know, the, the heroes of the time of the, the book of Revelation who, who gave their lives. In Hebrews 11, it talks about uh, men who the world was not worthy of. And uh, historically, that's, that's who Christians have always been, people that the world was not worthy of, who gave their lives as an expression of the beauty of the nature and glory of God to the world at the cost of their lives. And uh, so to read Revelation uh, is sobering. Historically, uh, we're told that just after the churches received the letters uh, that they received from John, that great persecution broke out. It was all over the church's refusal to worship Caesar. And it led to uh, Christians being thrown to wild beasts and torn apart as entertainment for the crowds in the Colosseum. Um, At one point, the roads coming in and out of Rome were lined with thousands of crosses with Christians crucified on them, dying by inches, just to remind everybody that uh, you you don't mess with Caesar. You don't uh, have a different, no other gods allowed, okay? Uh, Men, women, and children were impaled with spears, covered with pitch, and set on fire to provide light for Nero's uh, parties out on on the patio. And the, the amazing thing is this, that the message of the book of Revelation, the letters that these brothers and sisters received worked. It it provided in in the most hellacious, unbelievable time of persecution where everything is up for grabs, their their hope of the triumph of Jesus Christ, the fact that everything was going to be made right, that there would be perfect justice. That, that the Lord was the sovereign over everything. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there was nothing happening that hadn't come through God's providential hand that he was going to resolve one day. It was that that caused him to stand. And not, not only to, to stand, but uh, they, you know, with a vision of the resurrection to come, the ultimate triumph of Christ and the promise that all wrongs would be made right. The church not only survived, but it thrived. Believers going to their death with great courage and grace, forgiving their executioners, singing hymns as the flames consumed them. Uh, Tertullian, who is one of the early church fathers, here's his quote. He says, kill us, torture us, condemn us, Grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. For the seed of the church is the blood of the Christians. Every single drop of our blood springs up in some 30, in some 60, and in some 100 fold. Isn't that unbelievable? What, a, what, what an attitude. Well, read the last few chapters of Revelation every day for two weeks, and it'll really serve you. It'll help you to understand who you are, what's normal, 
and the glory of the hope that's set before us that's worth really getting things right now, no matter what the cost is, that the glory to come is worth whatever persecution, whatever embarrassment, whatever inconvenience, whatever, that it's glorious. And we don't want to miss it. We don't want, even if it means we're among those who are around, the, all of those who are beheaded around the throne that Jesus is welcoming to reign with him. It's, it's costly, guys, but it's glorious. And it'll, all the costs will be behind us. And all that's left is the beauty of being face-to-face with Jesus and joining him in the next chapter of his adventures, whatever they may be. But I guarantee you, they're not sitting around and eating pie and uh, you know, waiting for the next thing to come. <laughs> it's way cool. Like life in Christ is way cool right now if you really know what it is and you're engaged. Okay. The final bookend of Revelation, 19 through 22. I put 19 in there just because... Uh, because it clearly portrays the cost to the Christians. Uh, and it also talks about how Babylon falls, and I'll, I'll highlight that here. The final bookend of the book of Revelation is so important because it reminds us, number one, that authentic Christianity has always been costly, uh, that there's unique honor around the throne of God for those who have given their lives for the gospel. Number two, it, we're reminded that Babylon ultimately fails. And you may say, you know, what's Babylon? Are we talking about Iraq? We're talking about the Muslims? No, Abel, uh, Babylon is really the world system that's rooted in man and rooted in man's glory, okay? And it, Babylon will be destroyed right along with the devil in the last day. And the fall, the fall of Babylon is a gift to us because it, it reminds us not to be deceived with the temporal glories of this passing age, guys. Don't, don't be deceived with stuff or power or prestige. or It's all passing away. Use it for the glory of God. Take what God's given you. Hopefully God's really blessed you. You've got gifts, you've got abilities, you've got some money, you've got a house, you've got, you've got stuff. The Lord put stuff in your hands. What you have that you can use for his glory... Put that stuff to work. What you have that doesn't do anything, get, get rid, give that to some other dork who doesn't know what he's doing. Sell it to the other, some other dork, right? But use what you, if God's given you stuff, use it if you can do that in faith, right? But uh, just know that the, the guy who's at the top of the, the, the crap hill at the end, of, you know, the end of the day in the corporate world, it, it, it ain't nothing. It's nothing. It's just it's just a vapor. There's nothing there. Doesn't mean that you should leave the corporate world. Doesn't mean you should become a pastor. I'm not saying anything like that. But just get your hope right and understand why you're there and what to do with that favor and that that position. Okay, number three, it shows us God's work that, that God works everything exactly according to his plan. You're gonna see that as you read the last chapters of Revelation. You're gonna see the whole story, everything per, turns out exactly the way that God planned. Number four, the garden becomes the city. And so where you begin in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, with, with the garden and God's good intention there, that God's good intention carries on. And at the end of the story, he's accomplished everything that was supposed to happen that Adam failed in, but Christ redeems for the, the glory of God. And the, the amazing thing, you'll see this in, in Revelation 21, there's even indicators there that there are earthly works or earthly, cult, I, I don't know, cultural things that actually make it 
from our world into the new Jerusalem. And it says in Revelation 21, 24, that the kings of, their, of the earth bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. In, in verse 25, it says, they bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So there's something, uh, you know, and I don't know if that's penicillin. I don't know if they're going to come in with penicillin or they're going to come in with I don't know, the latest Mercedes or, I don't know what, but if you look around and you consider what's happened by God's kind, common grace, the world has come a long way since the garden in God's kindness. His abilities, his gifts in people, his, his ability to understand have really, even, even in fallen ways, there's wicked stuff, there's evil stuff, but there's amazing things, aren't there? Can you believe, you know, just the computer stuff that's going on just in our generation with the integrated circuit and, and just the explosion of an economy that, that that created? Who knows what the things would be that would be brought in before the Lord? The thing you can know for sure is they would be things that were rooted in a motive of the glory of God and the good of others that were then developed. People used the gifts God given. They sacrificed. They loved and served people. They worked together. And they created something beautiful. And, and it... it it was something that God wanted to keep around. It was one of those things that didn't need to be destroyed with fire, you know. So there's a couple of them, it looks like. Okay, Number five, relationships are all made perfect. There's no more wars. The swords are beaten into plowshares. There's no conflicts. The rights are made wrong. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered with one voice to declare worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and praise and dominion. Number six, most important, we see Jesus face to face. And that's, that's what heaven is all about. Heaven is about Jesus. It's always funny when you ask somebody, what do you look forward to in heaven? Well, I mean, I want to see the streets of gold. Won't that be cool? Or I want to see Aunt Betty. Or I want to... Heaven. If you don't want to see Jesus, heaven's not for you. That's really what heaven's all about. It's, it's seeing Jesus. And what a, what a moment that'll be. And I think we'll all we'll stand before him. It says there'll be no sun or moon for the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord that we're talking about from the very beginning, that overwhelming fountain of grace and goodness that's at the core of the Godhead that we're called to share and express and steward in in the areas, the arenas of life that God's called us to. We're supposed to be an extension of God's glory, that the glory of the Lord is going to radiate and that it's going to be the light of the city the glory of Jesus himself will dry every tear from our eyes. Hopefully tell you, well done. So the the significance for our personal lives is shaped by the significance of the story that we find ourselves as a part of. It's really important. What you you believe about God, what you believe about the storyline, who you are in that storyline and how you engage your part right here, right now, by the grace of God. Uh, that's, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it, it, it couldn't be more important. You've got families that need you. You've got a city that needs you. You've got workplaces that need you. You've got a world that needs you. And there isn't a plan B. There's the church. It's the only plan God's got. But he stands ready 
to pour his spirit out on us in a fresh way and direct us and help help to open our eyes to see how he's sovereignly placed us right where he has for his divine purpose. If we can see it, and he'll help us to see it. But you start to get a glimpse of what the Lord wants to do. And and, uh, life gets very cool, very exciting, full of purpose. Every relationship really matters. The ordinary stuff really matters. And uh, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful because he's beautiful. And he is to be reflected in everything. It's it's the story about his of his glory. Uh, and we get to have a part of it, which is a, a wonder. Yeah. Uh let's see here. Where the Lord Jesus takes up rule over our lives, there there's a profound change that happens when we really submit our lives to him and his purpose. We have a personal, vital encounter with the living God. And that leads to a clear sense of purpose and calling. That's what comes from that with time. That becomes practically worked out in every area of our lives, which leads to transformed individuals, transformed me and transformed people around me, transformed churches, transformed families and workplaces, and ultimately a transformed world. And may our lives be so consumed with the great storyline of Scripture that everything that we are, everything we do, is aligned with God's eternal purpose to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And we just pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Lord, would you let your kingdom come right here, right now. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in this place, in our little lives, Lord. We we are uh, no big deal. But Lord, would you let your kingdom come fully the way that you desire it to come in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our workplaces. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here and now as it, it's in your heart in heaven. Just ask for that. And we just pray for this, the rest of this weekend while we're together, Lord, that you'd open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to see you clearer. Help us to see your purpose for us. Help us to align our hearts and our minds and our hands for your glory. We just ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.